1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you haven't turned with Anne, go ahead and turn there. You're going to need that this morning. Well, in the, around 2010, an inventor by the name of Jamie Siminoff had an idea. He came up with this idea for a replacement to your doorbell. And it, the, the thought was that too many people show up to your doorbell and, and they ring and you don't know who it is, and that can be dangerous in some parts of the United States and some parts of the world. And so he came up with this idea of a doorbell that had a camera on it, and so when somebody rang that doorbell, you could look on your phone and see who was there. And he even went so far as to set it up so that you could be across the globe, and somebody rings your doorbell, and you say who's there, giving them the impression you're home. Well, he called his invention the doorbot, kind of the robot doorbell kind of idea. And in 2013, after he'd sunk his life savings into it, after he'd exhausted all other investors in it, he reached out to Shark Tank. And he came on that show, and he presented all of the wonders of this doorbell. And they didn't get it. They looked at that invention, and they said, well, this is something that's clever. It's something that's interesting. But I don't see how I could ever make any money in it. You see, the sharks had an interest in exploiting it. And Jamie passionately was telling them how great it was and the future of it and how it could do so many things, and they didn't hear any of it. And so he walked away with no deal whatsoever. Well, fast forward, that show aired in 2014, and all of a sudden sales of the doorbot flew off the shelves. And to make a long story short, a gentleman by the name of Richard Branson heard about this invention while he watched a friend using it, and he called Jamie, and he'd said, I would like to invest a quarter of a billion dollars in your invention. And that took him to the next level. And then pretty soon, they said it needs a new name. What name do you think they came up with? Share it at home. Ring, maybe? The Ring doorbell was that invention. And in 2018, five years after the Sharks could have invested in it for $700,000, Jamie sold it for $1 billion dollars to Amazon would have netted any one of those sharks $70 million for just five years of their money's time. But again, they looked at it, and what they saw in it was something that cost more of their life than they thought it was worth. I think too often people can have that same focus of God, where they look at Jesus and they look at his claims, or even prior to that, the history of, of Judaism is followers of God who looked at who God was and what he called them to, and they said it just costs too much. We don't know if that's going to be a good investment, and so they move on. Well, we've been going on a series in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book written to a young church that is now in modern-day Turkey. The city this church was in is very pagan. They worship multiple gods. They, they have false idols. It's all Roman rule. And so to a young church, worshiping Jesus as their only Messiah, it can feel very out of place. And so Peter writes this letter to them as an encouragement to say, you will feel out of place in a land that you once considered your home because the world you live in now, and that's what chapter one sort of covered, is not your home. We are exiles in this land. We have a hope for a future home, a future kingdom found in Christ. And until then, we are simply to love and follow and serve and understand that there are times that this world just does not seem like our own. That's where we started in 1 Peter, telling us what it means to be in exile. And in chapter 2, 
Peter is telling them what the community of exiles should look like. And in verse 1 through 3, he says, Put away all malice, all all deceit and hypocrisy, all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. I'm grabbing a drink of water. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He opens chapter 2 and he says, if you understand that you are followers of Jesus, if you understand that you are exiles in this land, then you understand that you have this future hope, this hope beyond all measure. And so get rid of these things. Your malice, your desire to do wrong, your deceitfulness, your hypocrisy, your being envious of other people, you're tearing people down. Get rid of all of those things. When you're the odd man out who doesn't laugh at the bad or inappropriate joke, when you're the one who won't be part of a lie or a cover-up, when you're the one who won't take part in celebrating somebody else's sin as if it's okay, those are tough places to be in life. And day after day when people look at you a little different because, well, you are different, it can be very frustrating. People from other cultures experience this in the U.S. every day where they're told that they should change the way they look, change the way they dress, change their food consumption, try some different foods, do things that just simply go against their beliefs. And day in and day out, they hear that. And for this church, that was their life at that time. It can be very tempting when you're in those modes to give in and simply do what you're asked. What's the harm in just going along with something even if you don't believe it? What's the harm in being silent even when there's a time we shouldn't be silent? Peter says, don't give in to those things. Don't give in to the idea that you look at your neighbor and your neighbor isn't living a life of God and he seems to be okay. And you're a little jealous of how okay he's doing. Peter says, don't look at all of that because you're looking at the here and now. God says, look up there. Look to his hope. Look to that brighter future you're going to be in. You know to who you belong, and you and I are just passing by. That's a pretty tall order. That takes a lot of discipline. So how do we do that? Peter says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Now let me caution you on this. Paul talks about it in his word, about saying they're liking milk too much, and they're not getting enough of the meat. Peter's not saying we should stop our spiritual journey at the easy stuff. Peter's saying there should be a hunger and a thirst in our body and our lives where we long to get into God's Word, where we long to get into prayer, where we long for Him to feed us. And I can tell you that the more you are out, the more you are involved, the more you are doing things in your life and in your community, the more you are going to find you need this. Now, I'll also be honest with you, I often struggle with having a real hunger for God's Word at the level that he talks about. This is a real convicting point for me as I was preparing for this sermon. And I think part of that, it's not that I'm not hungry, it's that we spend too much time on junk food and don't realize that it's masking our need for the real nourishment of God. Between TV and smartphones, I can fill my day with noise 24 by 7. Instead of taking my my needs to Scripture, I can find a self-help person online or I can find a friend who's going to give me advice. Is it biblical advice? Maybe not, but it's that 
It's that saccharin, it's that junk food that we let into our lives that gives us this false idea that we have enough information and we have enough of our own strength to be okay. And Peter's saying, don't do that. Get yourself into the spiritual food of God. In a minute, Peter is going to start to compare Jesus and his church to a building being constructed. And what he's essentially saying as he gets into this is that God's word is the blueprints for the building that is his church. And a bit of a spoiler alert, we are the church. And so if we are to be who God wants us to be, who God knows we can be, you do that by getting into his word and letting those blueprints be what builds your life and what builds my life. You know, there's a TV show on PBS that's been around for, I think, 35 years, and it's called This Old House. And you see these guys, and they've got the big truck, and they've got the tools, and they've got the know-how, and they have all of this great stuff, and they show up to a building that looks like it should possibly be condemned. And they start working on it, and over the course of the season, by the time they're done, the thing is gorgeous. And I always wonder, who has the money to put this kind of time and effort and money into a house like this? But at the end, it's beautiful. But they tell you often when they get there that they've gone ahead and they've inspected the building. And they say, well, this one's got good bones. Good bones. If it doesn't have good bones, it's not worth saving. What are those good bones? Well, it starts with a solid foundation. The foundation has got to still be healthy and true. It's got to have the strength to support the walls. It's got to be flat, level. The angles have to be at 90 degrees, not just whatever way the guy wanted it to go. The structure and framework that's supporting it has to be strong. The main beam has to be uh, built the right way. It can't be full of rot and full of termites and garbage and all this other stuff. It's got to have good bones. If those fundamental building blocks aren't there, they either tear the building down or pass on it because there's no saving it anyhow. If you built all that new on top of it, it would all fall in. Now, why am I telling you that? Because... Jesus is compared in this passage to a stone that men rejected, but that God chose and saw as precious and has laid him as the cornerstone to build his kingdom. When you build anything, the foundation is everything. In ancient times, it was the cornerstone. Today, it would be perfectly formed concrete. In either case, like I said, it's got to be solid enough to support that weight, and it has to be true. It has to be plumb level. It has to be perfect in every way. And if it doesn't, the taller you build that house, the more you see how imperfect the foundation it was built on, because angles will go this way and that way, and pretty soon it's not going to be worth anything. Our house that we live in now, while it works fine, you can tell it wasn't built with the greatest guy figuring out the perfect 90 degrees and plumb because we don't have a single wall in our house that is 90 degrees or, or perpendicular or parallel to the ones around it. So when you go to lay floor, you have a whole new, you know, this, this side might take four planks, and by the time you get to the end, it's four and a half planks. And you have to make all of these accommodations because they didn't think through a proper structure and how they built it. But Peter is saying God, when he was building his people, when he was building his church, he said, I've thought of everything. And in ancient times, they didn't have concrete to pour, so they had to have that stone that had all of those characteristics, and it became the cornerstone. And every time they added something to that building, they went back to the cornerstone, and they measured off of it, and they took the angle off of it, 
and every first measurement came off of that cornerstone so that once you started, everything was right and everything went the way it should go. But there were some who looked at that cornerstone as Jesus, and they rejected him. Remember, he came first to the Jews. He came first to God's people. But to the Jews, the Messiah meant someone who followed their rules, meant someone who was on the same page with their values, meant someone who was a warrior so they could all live in power over Rome when he came. But instead, Jesus came with God's rules, with God's values. And those values included love and compassion. They under, he understood that there were laws to abide by, but those were laws that tied together with justice, with mercy, with love. Today, people struggle with Jesus because they have their own priorities on what life should look like, and they often expect Jesus to align to those expectations. So Jesus should look like an all-loving, accept you and never try to change you, Messiah, some people feel like. Or Jesus should be the, take all of my problems away and let me live in peace, Messiah. Or Jesus should look like the, here are the rules that you must follow if you're going to be a good person, Messiah. But then conviction or justice or mercy show up, and they say, I don't recognize that Jesus. And so they reject him. Paul called the cross, the very idea that a Messiah could die, a stumbling block to Jews. But the work of salvation for those who believe, the opportunity to come and see beyond what's in it for me and see what God's sacrifice was really all about. But people, when they look at Jesus and they come from a, a focus of what's in it for me, they look right past him because they haven't yet seen enough of what they want in there. Jesus is the perfectly laid foundation on which the church is built. Jesus is the one from whom we should take all of our measurements. Jesus is the one who supports the entire structure. And if you and I are to be like him, we are living stones built on him as our foundation and being built on as a support for others. Now, in modern construction, when we start to build the walls, we use two by sixes and two by fours, but they didn't start that way. I was recently on a trip and I saw a a semi going down the road with massive logs all stacked up, and I knew where they were going. They were going to a place that was going to cut them and carve them and shape them and dry them and basically make them the two-by-four that we're going to see at Menards or Home Depot at some point. But they have to get to that point in order to be useful in building your house. Back then, they didn't have wood. The, the uh, construction piece of the day was stone. And so they would use stone, but again, it wasn't perfect. While the cornerstone had to be perfect, there weren't too many of those around. And so they would find pieces of stone, and the mason <coughs> would begin working on it, chipping away at it, sanding it, carving it, holding it up to the place to see where it was going to fit. But it had to be shaped just like a 2x4 has to be shaped into a 2x4 in order to become useful in building whatever building you were doing. And it's the same way with the church. Peter calls us living stones. We aren't dead stones that don't move or modify or change. We are living stones that God is continuing a great work in us. But as we begin to become believers, he's already begun a work in us. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the future time. He's already begun that work in our lives. And he will continue it on for eternity as he works with us and molds us and changes us into being who the church can be. 
So we have Andy Morgan, young, young Andy Morgan. I think he owned his own bar at some point, but bar scene, likes motorcycles, all that good stuff. Also coming from a family of leaders, a family of entrepreneurs. And he gets saved and he lives life in community with other believers, in close community. And God uses those experiences of being able to speak to people in a bar, being able to, to run a business like an entrepreneur would, being giving that heart for caring one another. And he takes all of those experiences and he shapes them into the man who comes along about 16 years ago and starts this church and plants this church. Cheryl Lynn grew up in a hardworking family that taught her the value of the dollar and the importance of a plan and a purpose to, accept, to, to success. She came through a life of faith that was grounded in serving those who needed it most. God was shaping her to be the gifted leader this church has today. Scott Lueck, Brian, Brian, I could never say your last name. Kazmara, Kamarik, I'll, I'll get it at some point. Morazic, there you go. Brian Morazic. Thank you. Brian and Scott, two men gifted with mechanical minds. Two men who God has been with through ups and downs in life. Two men who just love other people, and God has shaped them to serve others, not only with their ability to fix things, but also their ability to be great friends who will truly love you. God takes the good, the bad, everything in between. Things we say, why is this happening to me? I'm not saying God caused it, but I am saying he can use it. And those are opportunities to shape and mold you. Ben Westrait and Jeff Neiman, my two favorite geeks in the church. And I mean geeks is a term of endearment. These are people who love making technology do what it needs to do. Jeff has served faithfully every Sunday at that soundboard, making this entire service sound great. Ben was front and center as soon as we were told that we would be doing this online and streaming and has had us going since day one. God has used them in miraculous ways. He has taken the knowledge and the strengths that they've gotten from elsewhere and he's used their love of him to shape and mold them into who he needs to be. For several years, I was meeting with three to four pastors in the community. You see, as a pastor, you face frustration, uh, you face doubt, uh, you face opposition, and you face disappointment. And it's hard for people who aren't a pastor to understand what those are like. Then you go to conferences, and sometimes the conference shows off this great massive building, and the pastor tells you, how great he is and what a success he is. And if you've been having a rough couple of weeks as a pastor, you leave more defeated than you do excited. And other uh, uh, well-meaning ministries try to come alongside you, but they sort of make it more feel like you're sitting on Oprah's couch being counseled to and you're supposed to cry before the end of the service, otherwise it hasn't really gone right. And I never resonated with either one. I just needed people around me who understood, who would listen. And so when I was no longer in a, a pulpit every Sunday morning, I, took, I shifted my focus to pastors. And I found three or four pastors in the area who I could meet with, and I just heard what was going on in their lives, both their personal life and in their ministry. I would talk to them about the frustrations. I would say, yeah, I hear you. Some people are tough. And other times I'd say, let's be honest with yourself. What else is going in your life that that has caused you to be really frustrated? And some of the most important questions I asked were, when's the last time you had a day off? When was your last vacation? When was the last time you ate meal with your family? Or when was the last time you put your kids to bed and kiss them goodnight? 
because those are the things that fall apart in ministry when you have so many demands coming from other places. And so I could have that ministry because I knew what all of those things were like. I knew what it was like to go through all that. And each time, no matter how painful it got, God was just there honing me and shaping me and changing my life so that I could be useful, a living stone in the building of His church. You and I are living stones. And I love that we have to depend on one another. We are built together into a structure. Some people are supporting us. Others we are supporting. We find our place and purpose in that structure. And every stone matters. Take away one, and you'll find in some way your structure has been weakened. I love the fact that the church is not so much something we do, but something we are. Now, for years, pastors have talked about the church not being the four walls, but we are all the church. But it's kind of hard to think that way when every Sunday, week after week, we drop into the same seats and we come together and we talk about the building as being the church. And a lot of the focus is on that. And in some churches, you have the building program or the windows need to be replaced or the roof needs to be replaced. And it's very difficult to kind of get in our heads that that is just a building, but that the church is you and I. Peter, Peter teaches us that even if we are home, we are still at church. You see, social distancing happened, and I think it was one of the greatest opportunities for the church is what has happened now. Because you're at home right now watching this online, and you are still the church. You are working to make sure ministries throughout Aurora still are going on and that the, the food pantry is still full, and we're still the church. M3 and Exhale are still meeting every night, but it's by Zoom, and you're still the church. Zoom uh, is a uh, Zoom. <laughs> Diggs is meeting via Zoom on Wednesday nights, and there are more people enjoying listening and learning about Hebrews than there was before all this happened. While this quarantine in place was meant to physically distance us, it has provided ways for us to share and love each other more. We have stories like Joe dialing Clara when Clara couldn't get online to stream, and so Joe would put the phone next to the uh, PC so Clara could hear the service that way. We're driving by each other's houses. We're calling each other e each week. We're finding opportunities because we can't see each other for an hour on Sunday to make sure we find each other during the week. I think out of this, this is going to be one of the greatest testimonies of the church that God was continuing to shape his living stones, continuing to put us together and giving us this massive paradigm shift where we had to look at everything differently. And as I shared in the beginning, there's been a lot of jokes about, can we just forget about 2020? It was too hard. It was too bad. Too many things had gone wrong. And this last couple of weeks, as the tragedy of injustice and hate has come front and center, I am so happy to say that I've seen many of you pray for people of color, pray for the police, pray for God's love, God's justice, and God's mercy to prevail over everything that's going on. Folks, God works all things together for the good of those who love them. This world has attempted to throw every calamity at as possible, and that is allowing God to shape you into the perfect block to fit in the perfect spot as he continues to build his church. And through that shaping, we living stones are called to a royal priesthood, as he says in verse 9. 
Did you know that God's initial desire was that all of his chosen people, way back in Exodus, way back around the time of the Ten Commandments, for those of you that watched that with Charlton Heston, I think, every year, um, do you know that it was his original design that his people, the Jewish faithful, would actually connect with him directly? They would be the ones who would come to him and worship him and pray to him. But the Jewish people didn't want it. They didn't want that level of, of uh, responsibility. And they had such a fear of God. And, and it would be unbelievably terrifying the moment you're in the presence of something so great. But they couldn't reconcile that with their faith. And so they asked God, don't speak to us directly. And so starting with Aaron and others, the priests had to become mediators between the people and the holy God, assisting with the sacrifices and presenting them before the Lord. It was a high and holy calling because you were called by God and you were called by people to be the bridge between the two. But now God chose a new people. The Jewish people had rejected him. And God opened the door for the Gentiles to come in. And it's not that he has pushed the Jewish nation off. When they're ready to accept the Messiah, he's ready to accept them back with open, loving arms. But we don't have a high priest anymore who has to perform animal sacrifices to cleanse us. We don't need a high priest to serve as our middleman. We are all called to be priests, and we can simply pray our Father. Revelation 5 talks about of being in heaven in the throne room in, the front of, in, the, in front of our Lord. And in verse 8 it says, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. You see, in this scene, they were using the harp to sing songs of worship to the Lord. In the bowl, they hold all of our prayers. It's incredible to realize that you and I as priests have the privilege to come before our Lord with our offering of worship and our petition of prayers, not just for ourselves, but also for others. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Well, the more I understand about what Jesus' own work among us was and what it is, the more I understand the meaning of the call to follow Jesus to be a part of the temple, to look to the cornerstone for the direction of where my life should go. You see, my sense of my own call is embedded in my sense of what Jesus' call is. That's a very challenging and sometimes costly call, but there's a huge payoff. When my sense of call is most deeply tied to Christ's mission, then my identity flows more deeply from the identity that I get from Jesus. And Jesus' sense of his own identity flowed completely out of his sense of God's identity. Who do you think God is? What is God most concerned about? And when you think you have that, what does that, your life say about that? Well, here's a radical claim that Jesus made on that subject. God looks like Jesus. To see me is to see the Father. God acts like Jesus. God is concerned about the things that Jesus' followers saw his actions address all the way to the sacrifice on the cross. So what's God like? God's like Jesus, who will sit down with 5,000 strangers, prostitutes and Pharisees, Greeks and Jews, peasants and priests, to share a meal 
handed from hand to hand, with no opportunities to check to see if the kitchen was clean where it was made, or the cleanliness of the hands that got their hands in the basket. He was simply there to sit down with them and break bread together. God is like Jesus, who was reviled, persecuted, tortured, murdered, and yet as the riot was going on around him, he still spoke words of forgiveness to those in authority who were tormenting him. God is like Jesus, who taught us that the kingdom of God would be ushered in, not with the political and military muscle of kings and generals, but quietly raised from the mustard seeds of touching the unclean, feeding the hungry, healing those bound by disease, inviting the outcast, and reconciling with our enemies. If we believe Jesus, then we can stop saying no way to the things we think we must disagree with and lean into the reality of pointing to Jesus as a cornerstone, truly saying what would Jesus do until everyone God made and loves can tell the story of God's people as their own and can proclaim the same thing we have in 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we need your true north today. Those that cry out for justice not only need your justice, but they need to know your love and mercy, and they need their hearts transformed to have that same love and mercy for others. Those who are tormented need your relief, but they also need a heart that forgives those who are tormenting. When we look at everything going on, and we say, live like Jesus, we realize it can be a very tall order. But Lord, as Peter has so aptly pointed out, there can be no other way. It's who you've called us to be, people in exile, having friends on our side of, of whatever's going on that aren't going to understand when we show that mercy, love, compassion, forgiveness, or when we have a boldness to speak out when everyone else is silent. Help us, Lord, to thirst for your word and continue to shape us and mold us as I know you will. And I praise you for the testimony we have that we are not the same today as we were a year ago because of who we are. I pray, amen.